Today's episode is sponsored by Tigo. For most of us, indemnity insurance is one of our biggest costs of practice. But when was the last time you took a look at the coverage and compared your premium with others? Many of us are still with the same insurer we joined in med school or intern year. Thousands of doctors have made the switch to Tigo and benefited from their personalised approach to pricing. You will also get an extra two months free in your first year. If you are new to private practice, you might even qualify for four years of discounted premiums. Tigo offers competitive premiums, quality cover and 24-7 support backed by top medico-legal advisors. Get a free quote and discover why thousands of doctors are insured by Tigo by visiting tigo.com.au. Hello listeners and welcome to Deep Breaths, a podcast covering topics related to the part two anaesthetic exam. I'm Dr. Kate McCrossan. And I'm Dr. Kate Steele. And today's episode is Sweet Dreams Are Made Of This, where we discuss the perioperative management of type one diabetes mellitus with special guest, Dr. Amy Lawrence. As always, in this podcast, we represent our own views and not those of our employers or ANSCA. Dr. Amy Lawrence is a staff specialist at Concord Hospital in Sydney. She has interest in vascular and upper GI anaesthesia and also education in particular SIM training. She has a special interest in type 1 diabetes as she actually has type 1 diabetes herself, which she manages with an insulin pump. We are thrilled to have her on the podcast today. Amy, welcome to Deep Breaths. Thanks for having me. So, Amy, we know that type 1 diabetes mellitus is common, and we frequently see patients with this condition presenting for surgery. Now, what exactly is the current definition of type 1 diabetes, and how is it diagnosed? So, type 1 diabetes is an autoimmune condition in which the islet cells in the pancreas, which normally produce insulin, are destroyed. And this obviously results in an absolute insulin deficiency. Mm. The causes are complex and multifactorial and they aren't fully understood. There is no cure and it cannot be prevented. Mm. It is diagnosed obviously on symptoms and also based on blood sugar levels and HbA1c. So a fasting blood sugar level or BSL greater than 7 millimoles per litre is diagnostic, as is a random BSL over 11.1 and or an HbA1c greater than 6.5%. You can also use a series of antibody tests, which can confirm or refute the diagnosis, especially if you're confused, probably more in the adult population, about whether or not it might be type 1 or type 2 diabetes. Mm. Okay. So you mentioned that there can be some symptoms that lead to diabetes diagnosis. What would be some of the typical symptoms? So often the classical prodrome would be polyuria, polydipsia, and weight loss. Mm, okay. Uh, but that can obviously, if left unchecked, go on to develop quite significant neurological symptoms, confusion, coma, and mm. eventually death. Okay. All right. So is there a typical patient with type 1 diabetes, would you say? So type 1 diabetes was classically diagnosed in children. But we know now that about half of patients who are diagnosed are actually over the age of 30. Mm -hmm. Like most chronic diseases, I suppose there's a big spectrum. So lots of people living with type 1 diabetes will be extremely knowledgeable, motivated and proactive in managing it well. Others may all be far less motivated or have poor understanding or education. 
Um, this may result in being less compliant with administering or titrating insulin doses. Mm. And some patients may not have been investigated for any complications, which obviously becomes increasingly important the longer you're living with the disease. Mm. It's important to note that unlike type 2 diabetes, everyone with type 1 diabetes will be on insulin therapy. Mm-hmm. However, not everyone on insulin therapy has type 1 diabetes. Fair enough. And obviously insulin can be delivered either by multiple subcutaneous injections per day or via a subcutaneous insulin pump. Fantastic. Now, Amy, what sort of questions should we be asking in the pre-admission clinic or induction bay when we have a patient with type 1 diabetes presenting for surgery? Firstly, you obviously want to take a full history related to their type 1 diabetes. So when they were diagnosed, what their general level of control is, determined obviously by their BSL and their HbA1c, what insulin therapy they take and how often. And if you see someone on an insulin pump, it's particularly important to get the patient to download and print out or write down a copy of the pump settings. Patients should obviously be aware of the last HbA1c and should ideally have been taken within three months of any planned procedure. An HbA1c above seven indicates suboptimal control. And if you see this in the pre-mission clinic, for example, it's probably worth considering deferring any elective surgery Mm. because the patient will probably benefit from further intensive management of their insulin regimen. Although obviously this might not be practical in more emergent surgeries. And the reason for doing this is that high HbA1c has been shown to be associated with poorer post-op outcomes. And do you know if the same, I assume it is, but the same kind of principle applies to type 2 diabetes? Because I'm just thinking the last time I saw someone with an HbA1c under 8 and that probably hasn't been for a long time. Yeah. It does. It really does apply. Mm. So I think the Australian Diabetes Association and ANSCA in the process of trying to write new national guidelines okay. to help physicians, GPs, anaesthetists manage patients with diabetes in the perioperative setting. And their suggestions are definitely that we should be really focusing on trying to get control as Mm. optimal as we can, both in patients with type 1 and type 2 diabetes. Mm. Although obviously that's far easier said than done. Absolutely. Mm. Can I ask a silly question? Forgive my ignorance. When you get the patient to print out their pump settings, is there anything in particular that you're looking for? So pumps can be incredibly confronting because they're quite complex systems Mm. i think number one it's extremely useful for a medical legal point of view to have a copy of exactly what the device is doing Mm. the any endocrinologist will be able to interpret the pump setting so it's useful to be able to read out things over the phone to them if you're asking for advice Mm. but in general a pump would give you the daily dose of insulin Mm. it will give you how much you're getting per hour and it will also tell you roughly how much a patient is needing as bolus doses okay Okay. so we mentioned when the patient you know we're assessing them in clinic talking about their diabetes their glycemic control uh is there there anything else we look should be looking for in terms of complications of their diabetes so we've talked a little bit about hba1c i think it's also important to assess a patient's 
daily fluctuation in their mm. usual BSLs mm. and whether in particular they suffer from frequent or asymptomatic hypoglycemic events. And secondly, don't forget to take history for all the potential complications, mm. which can obviously be broadly differentiated into microvascular and macrovascular. And the microvascular complications include renal disease, neuropathy, including autonomic neuropathy mm. and retinopathy. And macrovascular includes um, ischemic heart disease and peripheral vascular disease. Yeah, okay. So we've talked a little bit about the pumps. I guess maybe just the mechanics. We both know someone that actually has an insulin pump. Now we know you as well. Um, are you able to go into a little bit more detail about the pumps and how they work? Yeah, sure. So an insulin pump works by, have a, by having a reservoir of rapid-acting insulin, often over-rapid, that's continually delivered via a subcutaneous cannula. The hourly rate can vary and is predetermined by a program in the pump that the users set up in conjunction with their endocrinologist. And then in addition to the basal rate, the user will need to carb count when they're eating and type this amount of carbs into the pump whenever they eat so that the pump is able then to deliver additional insulin boluses to cover those meals. And in the pump settings, the way it calculates this bolus amount is determined by something called the insulin carb ratio or ICR so that's something that you'd see on the, that printout of the settings okay that can also change at different times of the day mm, so there's okay. you know it might be one setting in the morning and a completely different one mm-hmm. in the evening okay you can also give correction boluses so that if any blood sugar level that you enter into the pump is higher than the target blood sugar an additional bolus is given to try and correct it down to normal. And when you look in the pump settings, the amount given of this correction bolus is determined by something called the insulin sensitivity factor or ISR. Hmm. So basically an insulin pump is just a sophisticated basal bolus booster Hmm. regimen using only rapid acting insulin. So it allows for sort of finer adjustments than with intermittent injections but does mean that if the pump malfunctions or the cannula becomes misplaced mm. or kinked or is or the pump is inadvertently stopped, mm. the patient is at very high risk of rapidly developing ketoacidosis. Mm. Okay. And you mentioned before that endocrinologists are quite familiar with these. So this is the best person to go to if we see someone and we're freaking out that we, we don't know what to do with an insulin pump. Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. Yeah. Geez, it's a complex system. I had no idea. Yeah, me neither. It's It's really complex. So, Amy, what's the rationale regarding blood sugar control during the perioperative period? And why should we be aiming for your glycemia? So, in general, poor perioperative glycemic control increases the risk of adverse outcomes. Mm. And prevention and treatment of hyperglycemia has been shown to reduce the risk of adverse outcomes. And what are some of those adverse outcomes? Um, So there's lots of increased morbidity, including wound infection, increased length of stay, increased myocardial events, Mm -hmm. as well, I believe, as increased mortality in some of the um, earlier studies as well. Okay. And so when we think about uh, just kind of the global goals of glycemic control for type 1 diabetics during the perioperative period, what are we aiming for? So in general, you don't want tight control. 
and obviously the NICE sugar study mm. in 2014 mm. suggests that we should be aiming for blood sugar levels between about 6 and 10 during okay. the perioperative period. Hypoglycemia must be avoided. Mm. And in general, we should always aim to minimise fasting times, both pre- and post-operatively where possible. Okay. Is there any special preparation for a patient with type 1 diabetes that's coming to theatre? And, I mean, should we be arranging for them to be first on the operating list, for example? Yes, ideally. (laughs) I know it's not always easy because Mm. there are lots of people with diabetes, Mm. um, certainly lots of people with type 2 diabetes. But if practical, it is always best to schedule people first or early on the list Mm. because if you've got minimized fasting times you're going to get far less disruption to your blood sugar levels Mm. okay that's fair enough all right so say uh, we've got a 34 year old female presenting for a laparoscopy plus minus excision of endometriosis she takes optisulin twice a day and nova rapid with meals her last hba1c was 6.8 percent and she takes her bsls regularly she denies frequent hypoglycemia and has no known diabetic complications how would we manage her insulin and her bsls in this perioperative period So as we've already mentioned, um, it's very important never to cease insulin in a patient with type 1 diabetes. Mm. From the history that you give, she seems to have well-controlled, stable diabetes. And given that it's laparoscopic surgery, there's a high chance that she should be able to resume a normal diet almost immediately post-op. So the most pragmatic approach to her diabetes management would therefore be to take her usual dose of long-acting insulin on the day of surgery. Mm-hmm. The Nova Rapids, so the rapid or short-acting insulin, however, should be withheld when she's fasting. People often look at me a bit confused when I say that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but you've got to remember that most people with type 1 diabetes take long-acting insulin at night. Yeah. And they fast at night and they don't normally suffer from hypoglycemia. So this approach generally is actually quite safe Mm. and it offers minimal disruption to the usual insulin regimen. And in fact, certainly in my own professional and personal experience, the stress response to surgical stimulus definitely tends to push your BSLs up Mm. um, in a perioperative period. Um, It's very important to keep a close eye on what your sugars are doing. So when when you're fasting, you should actually be testing blood sugar levels every hour. Mm. And if they drop below five, give a glucose-containing fluid. Okay, that's good advice. So with our day surgery patients, because I find this really interesting because I think the traditional teaching is probably showing that I've been around for a little bit too long, but like the traditional was, oh, you know, do the 50% type thing overnight yeah I remember being taught um, that as well and yeah, I did but it that for sense, one patient right? and she looked like absolute crap the next day she w- felt so unwell yeah that's interesting yeah, yeah. It's, it's fascinating so that's good to know and in terms of just practically a lot of our patients now are coming in for day surgery so would you be suggesting that they measure their sugars overnight or maybe just when they get up at five to come to the hospital should they start doing it hourly or yeah definitely not overnight mm. because that's usually no point yeah. yeah yeah never been measuring your sugars overnight normally but certainly when you're when you wake up yep, yep. every hour from now is yep. not an unreasonable suggestion. Okay. That's and then we interesting thing you were saying about the 50% of the usual dose mm. was based on the fact that it used to be quite common for people to be on premixed insulins mm. and certainly lots of people with type 2 diabetes tend to mm. be on premixed insulins. Mm. There's a shift away from that in a lot of people with type 1 diabetes now. So premixed insulins, obviously you've got a rapid acting component in there as well, mm. which includes the risk of hypoglycemia. 
So you do need to dose reduce that quite a lot. Yeah, okay. That is not an unreasonable thing to do. But with a purely long-acting, such as glargine, levomir, which used to be called lantus and is now called optisulin, keeping it at the normal dose is actually very safe. Okay. That's good to know. Yeah, it's really useful. So we've obviously talked about a very standard patient having a very standard surgery, but are there any situations in which we would change our general approach to a patient with type 1 diabetes? So we've spoken a little bit about hypoglycemia. Say the patient gives you a history of recurrent hypoglycemia or her HbA1c is less than 6.5, that may suggest recurrent or maybe even asymptomatic hypoglycemic offence. So it might be prudent then to give her a slightly reduced dose of her long-acting, often about 80% of usual would be um, suggested. And, of course, there are other situations whereby insulin may have to be administered intravenously via a variable rate intravenous insulin infusion, or Mm -hmm. a VRII, Mm -hmm. which used to be known as the sliding scale. Mm -hmm. This is certainly more likely in emergency situations where a patient is sicker or for more major surgeries where subcutaneous absorption of insulin might be unreliable. In addition, if you think that a patient's going to have prolonged fasting times post-operatively, it also might be prudent to consider an intravenous insulin infusion. Okay. Just a silly, again, another silly question. Forgive my ignorance. Um, There's no silly questions. (laughs) (laughs) If someone comes to theatre with a pump and they've got their basal insulin rate going, what do Mm -hmm. you do with the pump? Do you just keep it going and just check their BSLs intraoperatively or do you advocate stopping that and just checking their BSLs regularly? What what generally happens with someone that's on a pump per se? The same sort of principles apply basically. So if you think a patient on a pump is going to, you know, it's day stay, Mm. It's low or intermediate risk surgery. They're going to be eating straight away afterwards. Mm. If they're not sick, I would continue the pump. Okay, cool. Um, and just keep an eye on their hourly BSLs. Having said that, you do need to be monitoring their BSLs because obviously if the pump kinks or mm. something, you are at risk of hyperglycemia, mm. which um, needs to be attended to straight away. Mm. If, if someone's having major surgery, then you may well consider switching over onto a VRII. Okay. But again, I'd never really be making that decision entirely by myself. I'd always consult an endocrinology colleague. Okay. 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 Good to know. So with the VRII, like practically, how do you actually like set that up and, you know, what do you prescribe and how does it work? Actrapid is the only insulin that's licensed to be given intravenously. Mm-hmm. So Actrapid is always the insulin that you okay. use to make up a PRII. You take 50 units or 0.5 mils, so a tiny amount but a big dose, <laughs> and dilute it with saline to make a 50 mil volume. Mm-hmm. And then you can infuse it on a units per hour basis. So you've got a one unit per mil concentration. As we said, obviously, it's important to measure hourly mm. um, BSLs once you're on a VRII. There are lots of different ways that they can be adjusted. And so always refer to your local uh, hospital policy because they've probably got their own way of doing it. Mm. However, a cheat sheet for someone already on insulin, so with type 1 diabetes, 
is to calculate the starting rate by working out someone's 24 hourly, so their total daily insulin requirement, and then dividing it by 24. Mm, okay, all right. So we've kind of seems to have covered off the insulin side of things pretty mm, well, but is there mm. anything else we need to be on alert for, which, which is over and above the standard things we do for every other patient? I think in addition to, you know, looking for hyper and hypoglycemia, you should also have a high level of suspicion for delayed gastric emptying and increased aspiration risk mm-hmm. as a result of any autonomic neuropathy. Mm-hmm. Patients with type 1 diabetes also have an increased risk of nerve injuries and neuropraxia, so be careful with patient positioning, mm-hmm. especially if you're in lithotomy, things mm-hmm. like that. And silent myocardial ischemia is also far more common in um, patients with diabetes. So pre-op investigations may be slightly more useful in history alone to assess for ischemia. Mm. And obviously you should maintain a high level of um, suspicion throughout the perioperative period. Okay, great. So we're back with our lady who had the laparoscopy. Everything went well intraoperatively, but let's say we do need to run a patient on a VRII for surgery. How do we know when to convert back to the usual insulin regimen? So when a patient's ready to eat and drink or they've established more or less a normal diet, they can probably be converted back to their usual regimen. Ideally, you do this in the morning around breakfast time. Mm. Um, It can be done in the evening, but the transition period involves slightly higher vigilance required, so maybe logistically slightly more difficult for nursing staff. Mm. You should give the usual long-acting basal insulin as well as any short-acting insulin with food. The VRII should then continue for two hours after the subcut insulin has been given just to allow time for adequate subcut absorption Uh and then could be stopped. And the same principle applies for anyone on an insulin pump. Mm. Okay. That's interesting. Yeah, I would never that. have thought of that. Mm, me neither. That's a really useful tip. We've had a great discussion today, um, but you're not off the hook yet, Amy, because at the end of every episode, we ask our guests what they've learned in anesthesia this week. So, Amy, what have you learned in anesthesia this week? Well, I was actually at an M&M the other evening, Ooh. and as is common to every M&M, there was a case presented of anaphylaxis. Mm. There was a very clever allergy specialist there who said that your grade of anaphylaxis is likely to be one or two worse if you have a GA as opposed to an awake patient. Because oh, really? Because an awake patient has their sympathetic mm. um, response intact. Huh. So you may not get as much bronchospasm or cardiovascular collapse, which has basically changed the way that I give IV kefazolin. Mm. Because I always used to give it when someone was asleep because I was so worried about airway. Yeah, if, I was um, exactly the yeah, same. But yeah. I've changed the way that I do it. Fantastic. Yeah, that's, that's really fascinating. Yeah, that's mm. really interesting. <laughs> well, Amy, thank you so much for your time today. We really appreciate your time and your expertise. And it adds, you know, the extra layer of knowing that, you know, you, you're dealing with diabetes yourself. And, um, yeah, it's just been fantastic. Thank you so much. It's really great. Thank you so much. No worries. Well, it's been a fascinating chat on today's episode of Deep Breaths. As always, you can contact us at deepbreathspod at gmail.com. We'd love it if you spread the word to follow us on your favourite podcast platform and even review us. 
And if you know someone that you think would be a great interviewee, please feel free to let us know. Thanks for listening and we hope you can join us next time on Deep Breaths.